Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. How you guys doing today? Y'all good? Go to the book of 1 Corinthians real quick, find that spot, and we'll talk about it for just a few minutes. Lady, have a seat for Pete's sake, walking around during church. I'll tell you what, just teasing. We go way back. I'm not just calling anybody out, uh, and she deserves it if you know Linda. But anyway, oh uh, man, it's good to see you. Good to be here. And uh, uh, my wife and I went to hear Dr. Jordan Peterson this past Wednesday night, and I say that just to say, be prepared for some profound wisdom today, because I'm all, all kinds of keyed up. But uh, anyhow, uh, no, what reminded me of that was Stephanie leaned to me. Of all things you get out of a, I don't know if you ever listened to Jordan Peterson, he's a psychiatrist, he travels and has authored books and does these talks and stuff. He's a pretty interesting guy, you know, if you're into that kind of smart guy stuff. Um, but um, <clears throat> the one thing that my wife got out of it at about an hour and a half in, she leaned over and she goes, see, people get up and go to the bathroom the whole time he's talking too. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's what reminded me of that. But um, anyway, it is true, and they did. But, uh, but he did lecture for two straight hours, so, um, and I'm going to follow that pattern this morning. So I hope you came prepared for the long haul. But uh, we, are, we are embarking on an entirely new chapter. We spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. Um, it seemed like the more I dug into 1 Corinthians 4, you know, I've, honestly, when it, as, as it pertains to different books, various books of the Bible, I'm very familiar with the book of 1 Corinthians. I've spent a significant amount of time over the years studying it. I've actually taught two series. This is the third time I've taught through the book of 1 Corinthians. But the more I dug into chapter 4, the more content I found. There was just so much in there, and we could have frankly continued um, down that path of, of building a foundation and, and understanding that our faith is anchored in Christ and all those things. Um, but we got to move on at some point, right? So we're going to move on today to chapter 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is very exciting. I hope you are fired up about this because the topic, the subject matter, matter of 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is church discipline and excommunication. Good stuff. Very encouraging for a Sunday morning. Uh, but <clears throat> we're going to dive into that and, uh, and just really kind of unpack and see what all it's talking about. We're, in fact, going to read the entire chapter to start off. There are only 13 verses. So begin with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 1. And as I said, we're going to read on down through the entire chapter. I really want you to get a good feel for this, okay? It's good stuff. Everybody ready? It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. It's going to get good. And such sexual immorality. Who, I mean, how exciting is talking about sex on a Sunday morning? At least you get to sit there, and i got to do the talking. And such sexual immorality, as is not even named among the Gentiles or the pagans, that's a reference to the pagans in their day, that a man has his father's wife. There's an exclamation, exclamation point at the end of that sentence. And you're puffed up. You're arrogant. And you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed is absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven 
leavens the whole lump. Therefore, purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, since you are truly, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those who also are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves that evil person. Boom. It's going to be good. There's so much here, and uh, I can't wait to unpack it all. And there's so much beneath the surface that I want to share with you. So we're going to get into this today on the subject of church discipline and excommunication. Everybody fired up about it? All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the gift of life. Thank you for the joy that we have in your presence. Lord, thank you that we can walk into a place and feel freedom, feel liberty. Uh, Lord, to be ourselves, to just walk in uh, in, in, uh, in, in all the essence of our lives and, and understand that each of us are on a journey and we all have problems, we all have struggles, and we're here today because we understand that the answer to our questions, the solution to our problems are found with you. So, Lord, we look to you today. We ask you for guidance. Lord, help me as we navigate this chapter. Uh, it, could be, it could be sorely misconstrued. It could be misapplied, and it has been. And so I want to be careful with the text. I want to be careful with, with the principles and the concepts that are contained therein. And, Lord, I need you to help me do that. I pray that you'd give me wisdom to be articulate, help me to speak the truth, in love and in a, in, a, in a way that's comprehensive to our hearts and minds. Strengthen us in our understanding and in our journey of faith, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And so the title of this series is, is Messy. Church is Messy. Church is Messy. Church is Messy. So today, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna double down on that and say, church is messy, dot, 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 real messy. It's real messy. And uh, when you have to dive into a subject like sex and the fact that there are certain parameters within the confines of God's purpose that we need to understand and follow, we recognize the fact that church can be real messy. And as we've said before in this series, church is messy because people are messy and people have problems. Therefore, churches have problems. If churches have people, churches have problems. I'm looking at a room full of problems today. Not that you're a problem to me, but we have them, don't we? We all have problems, we have struggles, and so um, all I'm going to be able to give you today, and I want to apologize in advance, but I'm only going to be able to get into the introduction. So this is the introduction to chapter 5, and it is a very long introduction, okay? Because in order to serve you well on this subject, it's going to take a minute to present the vast landscape of it in its context. And so introductions all you get. I don't care how much you plead and bellyache and cry at the end, you only get an introduction today, all right? 
You good with that? So let me recap momentarily where we've been in this journey. It's good just to kind of refresh our minds because I even forget, you know, I'm the one teaching through it and then I think, oh, we covered this already. Uh, But let me just give you a real quick rundown, especially if you haven't been here thus far in in our study. In chapter one, after a very brief salutation, uh, Paul immediately begins calling out the swift undercurrent of issues that were plaguing the church in Corinth. He said, I believe it's in verse number 13, I don't remember, chapter 1, somewhere in that general neighborhood. He says, it's been reported to me by those of Chloe's households. I don't know who Chloe was, I don't know who lived with Chloe, but they were talkers. And they were apparently a pretty reliable source of information because Paul was, in fact, responding to the information that had been shared with him directly from Chloe and those within her family. They were evidently leaders within the church. They, again, were very uh, evidently known for having a reputation for uh, being trustworthy, being reliable. Uh, And Paul was writing to the church in Corinth based on some of the things that he had heard reported to him directly from Chloe and those within her family. And one of the major issues that we see uh, immediately in chapter number one is that there were problems of among the Corinthian church specifically with divisions within the church. There were divisions among the church leadership. There were divisions within the membership of the church. People were identifying themselves with with different church leaders. They were saying, I'm of Paul. Well, I follow Apollos. And they were sort of pinning their identity in in different personalities. We talked about that last week in chapter four in a more elaborate fashion. But but Paul immediately comes right out of the gate in chapter one and calls out this hypocrisy, calls out this problem of division. And I will go ahead and say to you that division is one of the major problems in churches. The enemy understands this concept. Jesus said that even Satan himself recognizes that if his kingdom is divided, it will fall. And so there's this, there's this essence of power that is re- realized when as believers in Christ, we can band ourselves together in the, within the bond of unity, that we come together collectively understanding that the gospel, gospel um, is, the, is, the, is the major aim of our purpose, that we, that we surround ourselves with people who are like-minded and we, we understand that we're all broken and come from various backgrounds with various issues and we're at varying degrees within our journey. We understand that, but we bind ourselves together in the common denominator of the gospel itself. And so Paul calls out the division in chapter 1. Chapter 2, Paul reminded them uh, that during the duration of the uh, approximately 18 months that he had spent in Corinth. It was, in fact, 18 months was a very long time for Paul to spend in any one particular place. If you study the, the mission, mission journeys of Paul as he would go around uh, the region of Asia Minor, the, the, the known world of his day, uh, he didn't spend a lot of time in certain areas. In fact, sometimes he'd only spend weeks in certain areas. But in Corinth, he spent 18 solid months approximately uh, teaching them, discipling them, and he intentionally focused their attention toward the gospel unwaveringly. So if you remember in chapter 2, verse number 2, Paul even goes so far as to make the statement that when I was among you, I determined not to know anything except for Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, you tried to reel me into all other sorts of debates and subjects, and and you wanted to, to discuss other issues and topics that I just frankly wasn't willing to get into with you because I wanted you to understand the, the paramount place that the gospel belongs in within the culture of a church. So he said, while I was with you, I wasn't going to argue about politics. I wasn't going to discuss Rome and Caesar and anything else that you wanted to rope me into. He said, I purposed in my heart that while I was with you, I didn't know anything. I played 
dumb on all other subjects except for the subject of the Lord Jesus Christ and his supremacy within the church. That was chapter number two. Chapter number three, uh, we, we begin to look deeper into the issues at a more, more of a cellular level. We begin to sort of scrutinize and dissect where these problems really were, were streaming from. Uh, for example, uh, we discussed what was causing the division in the church. So it's one thing to note the fact that churches are divided. It's one thing to recognize the fact that the enemy is at the root of division. It's another thing altogether to identify that it's jealousy, that it's pride, that it's self-will, that it's egotism, and a plethora of other metaphors physical diseases that infected the heart and the soul of the church in Corinth. So in chapter 3, we, we began to dive a little deeper. We began to psychoanalyze some of these issues and, again, spent quite a bit of time in chapter 3, did we not? And then in chapter 4, we were reminded that we have all been given gifts and talents and that we are answerable to God for how we invest and manage those gifts and talents. So whether uh, you're a preacher, a teacher, uh, whether you lead a small group, whether you serve uh, in any particular capacity or not, you are still responsible and answerable to God for the gifts that He has delegated to you. As human beings, as being image bearers of God himself, God has given us certain gifts, certain talents, certain abilities, and there will come a day that we have to give an account for how we invested those gifts, those talents, and those abilities. Each one of us will give an account, the Bible says, of himself before God. And so in chapter 4, Paul discussed that fact. In verse number 1, he said, it's required in stewards and managers that one be found faithful. Our number one calling is to be faithful to the calling that God has given to us. We spend so much time worried about what everybody else is doing when the reality is I need to be focused on me and what my purpose is, what my calling is, and what everybody else does is on them. And so Paul discussed that. We discussed that together in chapter 4. And then chapter 5, as we arrive and approach chapter number 5, I just want to go ahead and say it, things get weird. It gets weird. Chapter 5, verse 1, it's actually reported, he said, that there is sexual immorality among you. And such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man should have his father's wife. Now, if that ain't weird, I don't know what is. Are y'all hearing me? That's weird, isn't it? It's weird. So here's the dirt. Y'all ready? You want to know the gossip, what was going on in the church in Corinth? Here's what was going on. A man in the church, in case you couldn't gather this from what we just read, a man in the church was actually sleeping with his stepmom. Now, I don't mean taking a nap. He was actually engaged in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Can we all look at our neighbor and say, ugh, (laughs) disgusting. Nonetheless, it's what was going on. And by the way, it's important to note that this wasn't just some nasty rumor. It was common knowledge within the community. He said it's commonly reported. Everybody kind of knows this is going on. It's not a secret. It's not some just, just, just fairy tale that somebody conjured up to ruin another person's reputation. This was actually happening. And, and, and the people involved, namely this dude and his stepmom, 
were not only unashamed of their illicit relationship, they were proud of it. They flaunted it. They walked arm in arm into church together. God, you getting this image in your head? It's nasty. So it wasn't just, uh, uh, wasn't just this, this, this unfounded rumor. They were actually walking into the church, into what we would know, what we would call a church service. When the church would gather together, they were not only engaging in this sexually immoral conduct privately, which is bad enough, right? But they were, they were so unashamed of it. They, in fact, were proud of it, and they flaunted their relationship. Now, now. Paul points out that, that not only should this behavior be taboo and in direct violation of, of God's principles of moral purity, but, but that even in a society as morally loose and corrupt as Corinth, they rejected such explicit sexual deviancy. Now, that's bad. When, when Corinth, if you, if you know anything about the history of Corinth, Corinth was known for, for sexual debauchery. They were, they were known for being very loose. I mean, that's an understatement. They were very loose in their moral standards. They had this sort of anything goes and under the guise of acceptance and loving everybody, they, they didn't really have all that many boundaries when it came to sexual activities. And so for Paul to say that what you're engaged in is not even named among the pagans within our community, he was saying, man, you guys are jacked up acting like that. You realize that even this lost world who, 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 who efficiently says, man, ever, anything goes, it's, they're against that, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> they think you're gross. Like they think what you're doing is unacceptable and, and disgusting, and so, and so, and here's another interesting little, little nuance within the text. As unfair as it may seem initially, Paul doesn't even make any mention of the woman as far as culpability and ramifications are concerned, but instead he zeroes in on the man and instructs the church to remove him from their congregation. Now, I personally feel attacked as a man. Don't you? I'm tired of all this discrimination against men. Come on, guys. It's a little thing called irony. I thought you'd get that very quickly. But, but the truth is, jokes aside, he really did just, he, other than mentioning the stepmom, he doesn't really spend any time dealing with her. He doesn't instruct the church to call her out for the way she was behaving. Again, I don't want to be crude or anything in church on a Sunday morning in mixed company, but it takes two to tango. Amen. And uh, the reality is he just kind of ignored her, which is, again, odd. And so whenever you see oddities like this, there are reasons for it, and that's what I want to try to get into. Why did Paul spend his time focused on him? Why did Paul instruct the church to deal with his behavior and call out the way he was conducting himself and, 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 and leave her alone. That's, that's what I want to try to. We're going to get there because there is a big reason for that. But before we go tossing people out of church, let's explore the details of this controversy from an objective 
an overarching perspective. So I'm going to ask us to zoom out. Can y'all zoom out with me a little bit this morning? We're going to zoom out a little because there are things that we need to understand, certain concepts that we need to have in place within our, within our perspective, within the way that we view and interpret this text that I believe are vitally important. So, so this morning, I'm going to spend the majority of our time discussing what I call triads of commencement and culpability in the life of a Christian. Now, I told you I went and heard Jordan Peterson this week. That's why I'm using big words. Okay. But the reality is I couldn't think of a better way to, to, to try and articulate these compartments. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you three triads or three compartments uh, of three, three compartments of three, uh, areas of, of commencement, beginning, and, and, and also related to that, the culpability that is, is directly accompanied with that commencement. So, so there are levels, if I could explain it this way. There are levels of understanding that are inherent to any subject or endeavor. Would you guys agree with that? Cool. So uh, what I was saying was there are levels of, of understanding. The second row is with me. Uh, there's, there are levels of understanding with, within the confines of any endeavor, right? No matter what field it is. So if it's in the medical field, there are certain levels. I'm educated to a certain degree in the medical field. I Google stuff. Don't you? Start feeling weird. What's the first thing we do nowadays? We Google it, right? So, so that, that's a level, low level, no doubt, but that's a level of understanding. We get that. Uh, and then in another arena, uh, there, there are other levels, like, like in sports, right? There's everything from a beginner's level course to a master's level of understanding in any given arena. So, so again, we certainly understand this concept in other areas, such as the medical field, or again, the example I want to use is, the, is the, in the field of sports. Like, I want to use that because my level of understanding of sports is fairly low level, right? So I understand where, I, where I'm at on that. And, and there's an obvious difference. So when we think about people involved in, in sports, we, we, we understand that there's a difference in performance level of, of a professional athlete uh, versus someone who played little league ball. Are you guys following me? Okay. So we, we don't expect someone on the professional, or rather we don't expect someone at the little league level to perform at the professional level. Now, some of you parents look up in here because you need to get this. All right. I've seen you at ball games for crying out loud. It's little league. It's school league. Leave them alone. So maybe we don't understand it. In fact, maybe my illustration just totally went out the window. But we should recognize that there are different levels. And, and we wouldn't compare a guy who played Little League ball to a guy who was the first-round draft pick of a professional ball club. Yeah, definitely, if you ever see me out playing any kind of sport, do not expect a high level of performance. That ain't me. And so we get that. So, so, so. The, the essence of what I'm trying to say is what is true in these other arenas is also true within the ranks of Christianity. It's true. That's not a slight to anybody. It's just that there are people who are, are beginning their journey with Christ, and then there are those who are well-versed. They are very highly educated and have a high level of experience in the context and culture of Christian circles. We, we should readily accept that and understand that. And 
as we understand this in general, we also recognize, either consciously or subconsciously, that, that there's a higher level of responsibility and, by default, culpability to people who play at a higher level. Right? If a guy, let's just, let's just stay with this ball analogy. You want to pick one, baseball, football, basketball? I like, I like hockey better than any of them because the fights. <laughs> Y'all knew that. But, uh, you know, I, I, mean, I mean, a guy that's making, you know, has signed a $70 million contract for five years ought to be a little bit more responsible for his actions than a kid who is playing t-ball because his dad made him. Right? Like you wouldn't punish that kid for screwing around during practice because that's what kids do. Right? My favorite game when I played Little League Baseball, my favorite game in right field, because that's where you put the crappy ball players in Little League, my favorite game was to play catch with my mitt in the outfield. It was awesome. It was the most boring place in the world to play ball, and that's where they stuck me because I didn't care about it. I frankly didn't care about it. And so, you, but, you, but you shouldn't hold someone at that level to the same standard that you hold a professional athlete. And the same is true within the church community because a church community is made up of all different types of people with varying backgrounds, varying levels of understanding, varying education, varying experience. And so in order to approach chapter 5 from, from an honest disposition of heart and mind, we have to recognize that there are varying levels of commencement and culpability. So, so I want to explain in a general sense how this breaks down. I, I, never, I never usually like to use um, uh, a, like a whiteboard uh, or like I, I, I wanted to be able to draw this on the screen on my iPad, but I couldn't figure out how. So I would love to be able to illustrate this, but I, I want to try to just draw a mental picture for you. Okay. You guys have a vivid imagination today. Okay. So, so I want to give you these, these triads as we're going to call it triads of commencement and culpability in the Christian life. Triad number one that we have to take notice of and recognize is the triad of our relationship with God. Here's what I mean. Our relationship with God begins with salvation. We, we, in order to have an actual relationship with God, I'm talking about on a, on, a, on a sincere level, a level of genuineness, something that's real. You have to experience the new birth through Jesus Christ. This is the reason for which God humbled himself, as it says in Philippians chapter number two, and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The reason why Jesus robed himself in flesh, the reason why Jesus endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, the reason why Jesus took our stripes and was broken for our sin and was nailed to a cross is so that we could enter into this relationship with him that we could not enter enter into on our own. Jesus did for us what was impossible for us to do for ourselves. The gulf that was fixed between humanity and deity was impassable from our vantage point. And so God himself crossed the chasm, built a bridge, and brought us into fellowship through the sacrifice of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so we understand within triad number one, the first step to this whole process of being in relationship with God is that we come to God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the gift of salvation. Ephesians 2 verse number 8 says, for by grace you are saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Salvation is not a goal achieved. It's a gift received from the hand of God. He gives us the gift of eternal life. We receive the gift of eternal life by faith. As I said in chapter 4, we understand that faith is only as strong as the object in which it is aimed. Faith and faith doesn't save you, but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ will. So when we pin our faith in Christ, when we put our trust in him and we believe on him, we believe in what he did for us on the cross, we are born again. We're saved by God's grace. You following me? And then within this triad of our relationship with God, the next step in continuing that relationship, having nothing to do with our eternal destiny, having nothing to do with whether or not we're saved, but the next step is we follow in what we call believer's baptism, right? Baptism is not just some religious rite or ritual whatsoever. In fact, baptism is exactly a presentation to all those who are present at our baptism that we are dying to our old selves. That's why when we baptize, we say things. There are no magic words. There's no necessary outline for what to say in the Bible. But, but we often say things when we baptize people such as this. We say, buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection. Or we say, raised to walk in new life. What that means is we are recognizing that in baptism, we are exemplifying, we are exhuming, we are putting on display for all to see that my life is no longer mine. I am consumed and immersed in Jesus. Just as I am being immersed in this water, I want you to recognize that my life is now enveloped by him. And as Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God unto salvation of those who believe. So when we're baptized, we are putting on display to everyone that I am in Christ. And I want y'all to know it. Whatever you knew about me before this day is in the past. It's history. And now I'm rising to walk in this newness, this renewal of life. I have actually now found my life in Jesus. I found what I've been searching for. I found what I've been longing for. And baptism is, the, is, is a public expression of what has already taken place in our hearts. We're saved by grace through faith. We are baptized as a symbol of that faith. We are, we are testifying. It's your first public testimony to show the people who are there that you've received Christ and that you're now going to live the life of a Christian. That's phase two in the triad of our relationship with God. And then phase number three is what we call just commonly discipleship. Is this making sense so far? Seriously, tell me, yell at me if it's not making sense. Okay, actually, don't do that, please. But <laughs> I say stuff, and I don't really want you to do it. But discipleship is when we, we've been saved, we have taken, and we often, by the way, say that the first step of discipleship is baptism, right? Because in baptism, we're following in obedience to Christ. Jesus set the standard uh, in his baptism, 
And so we're following an obedience to Christ's command, following the pattern that he, he set forth for us. But then discipleship is, is a commitment to be a student of God's Word and to follow His leading. That's a very concise definition, but yet it's an understandable one that, that, that discipleship is, is a commitment to be a student. Disciple means student, by the way. So discipleship is, is a commitment to, to become students of the Word of God. And as students, James told us that we shouldn't just be hearers of the Word, but we ought to be living it out. So we're not here just to get a higher education and walk out unscathed and unchanged. The truth of God's Word ought to be altering the course of our lives, changing our nature to a degree, and, and helping us understand why we're really here. So as a disciple of Christ, we are disciplining, disciplining ourselves to be students of the Word of God and then doers of the Word of God, trying with the help of God to live the life of a genuine believer, a genuine Christian. No disciples perfect. None of us have arrived. It's a lifelong journey. From the time you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you will be continuing in this process. The process is called sanctification. We are being sanctified. We're being changed. We're all trying to level up and do better, and we want to grow in the grace of God and continue to expand our knowledge. And so, so again, that is, that's conceptually the essence of discipleship. So triad number one has to do with our relationship with God, salvation, baptism, discipleship. Got it? Triad number two. <laughs> you have to get the, I know this sounds a little, maybe a little technical, but, but we need to understand these things. Triad number two has to do with the commencement of our journey of faith as believers. The commencement or the beginning, the initiation of our journey of faith as believers. The first phase of, of, of this journey, we realize that we become, through faith in Jesus, a part of the family of God. That's triad number two, point number one. I'm already getting lost. <laughs> triad number two, point number one, having to do with the commencement of our journey of faith as believers is that we recognize that we are a part of the family of God. So when we were born into Christ, born again of the Spirit, John chapter 1 says that as many as receive Jesus have the power and the right to recognize that we are now a part of the family of God. So when we say born again, what does that mean? It means that we're born into a new family. We are saved, we are accepted, and we are forever God's child. So pertaining to our journey of faith as believers, you have to recognize that you are not striving to receive more favor in the eyes of God, that because of Jesus, you have already received God's favor, you've been given that by his grace, and that now we've put our faith and trust in Jesus and been justified from our past, we realize that we are God's sons and God's daughters. We're the children of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and we're part of the family of God. We used to sing the song back in the old days. I like old hymns sometimes, but we would sing the song, I'm so glad I'm a part of the family of God. 
I've been washed in the fountain, cleansed by his blood. Join heirs with Jesus as we travel this sod. I can't afford sod because I'm part of the family. The family? I can't help being stupid. I'm sorry. The family of God. So I'm glad to be a part of God's family. We're in the family of God. And you can travel to any part of the world. You go to China, Korea, Mexico, God forbid Russia. And you meet another believer. Sorry, I've never been to Russia. I can't criticize it. But you meet another believer, you will find that that is your brother or your sister in Christ. Different background, different culture, different financial brackets, varying races. It doesn't matter. If you're born again, you're in God's family. And whether you like it or not, we're tied together forever. You can like me now or you can like me when we get to heaven. And you may be crazy cousin Eddie, but you're still part of the family because we've been accepted. The Bible says we've been accepted in the beloved. That's Jesus. We've been accepted because of Jesus. See, so then it doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. It's the fact that now we've been born again. We've all been given a clean slate and we're part of the family of God. So triad number two, in the commencement of our journey of faith as believers, we recognize that we're in the family of God. Second phase of that, that, that commencement or that journey is that we, we understand a little bit about the kingdom of God. This is another step, okay? Another step is recognizing our place within the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? Jesus talks so much. If you read the Gospels, you'll find so many references that Jesus makes of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. You'll, uh, and, we, and we just see this repeated over and over and over and over. And so it begs the question, what does it mean to be in the kingdom of God? Well, I, I, I just can't seem to get away from what we commonly know as the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer, but we find a very, a very important principle within that construct that Jesus gave to us when he said, uh, when you pray, pray like this, pray after this fashion in this manner. Our Father who art in heaven, holy be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we recognize that the kingdom of God, within the kingdom of God, we are yielding to the purpose of God for our lives. This is another phase. Because we entered into relationship with God by grace, through faith. It's a free gift, didn't cost us a thing. All we did was recognize that we were in a lost condition, that we were broken, that we don't have the power to redeem ourselves in the eyes of God, and that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So in salvation, we just receive the gift and become part of the family. But within the kingdom, we do recognize that there is a sense of yielding and forfeiting our own will, our own desires. And, and now we're not living a self-willed or a self-seeking life. If we want to enjoy the kingdom of Christ in this world, then we understand that people who are seeking the kingdom of God desire his will above their own, and, and, and they pray uh, that with the same passionate desire, God, I want your will to be done. I want your kingdom to come in my life. I want you to sit on the throne of my heart. I want you to guide and govern all the essence of who I 
I am. I want you to manipulate every molecule, every conversation, all the physical and metaphysical that surrounds who I am. I want you to rule sovereignly over that. I want your kingdom to reign over me. I've been the king and I've seen what I've done with my own kingdom. So I'm stepping down from the throne and I'm yielding myself as a subject within the kingdom of the sovereign one. I'm yielding myself to the purpose of the Almighty. I'm recognizing that God designed me for a reason, that my life is not purposeless and meaningless, that I wasn't born just to live and breathe and go to work and and sweat and make money and, and maybe enjoy a few minutes here and there within my days and weeks of time on the earth. I was rather created with a divine and sovereign purpose. And when I yield myself to God's kingdom and I let Jesus reign on the throne of my heart, it will make a fundamental difference in everything pertaining to my life, when I yield that to him, we are surrendering and submitting ourselves to the kingdom of God. That makes sense. Y'all understand I'm explaining some big things in a very concise fashion. I hope you're following along because it's important to the text, believe it or not. I'm not just avoiding 1 Corinthians 5. But then within triad number two, having to do with our commencement, the commencement of our journey, of faith as believers, we see that there is also this thing called the church. If the family of God, the kingdom of God, and then we have the church of God. The church of God is another vitally important step within this process because we recognize by mere definition, if you study the word church in the Bible, the word church comes from the Greek word ekklesia, And it means to be a part of an assembly, a body that's been called out, that we have have collectively recognized that that we're greater together than we are on our own. And we have have entered into this sort of covenant relationship uh, as being a part of the family, as uh, being one who has yielded myself or yourself to the kingdom of Christ, desiring his will, desiring his purpose. And now we have have sort of aligned ourselves with other people who have the same desire, the same will, that that we want to be in God's will. We want to be used of God. And we recognize that God established this thing called the church, this sort of enigma of people who from varying parts of life in general have now come together under the common purpose of carrying out the will of God collectively. And so the church is understood. If you were to do a sort of a study, an etymological study of the word church or the concept throughout scriptures, it's named all throughout the New Testament. The epistles of Paul are directly written to local churches. And so we understand that the most common application or definition, I should say, of the word church is exactly what you see here this morning. Now, this is, again, more specifically a church service, but the church, by definition, is a visible assembly of God's people. We commonly call this the local church, and the reason why we make that designation is because there's another application in the New Testament to the church. Sometimes we say church in the sense of the universal body of Christ. You follow me? When we say church, we're we're not just speaking of our local assembly. We're not just talking about our particular tribe that we go to church with. We're we're actually, in fact, talking about uh, all believers of all tribes and 
tongues and nations of the earth who are part of the family of God. But just as I said a moment ago, I think a more accurate description of what we're talking about when we say that is the family of God. Because the word church, again, just by mere definition, means a called out, visible assembly. Nothing wrong with saying church in the universal sense, but in the truest sense of the word, church is this. It's the people. It's the body. It's the gathering together of a local assembly. So I had a conversation this past week with a very good friend of mine uh, about the concept of church and, 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 and what we would uh, call specifically a church service. And the nature of the conversation was uh, basically this, and I don't know if you know this, but there is a bit of a debate um, as to whether a church service uh, should aim fundamentally at people who are outside the church or people who are inside the church. For, should, so, 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 so basically the debate is this, should we structure our church services? Okay, when I say church service, you, you know I'm talking about this right here right? So when I say church service, I'm talking about the when we gather together. I did say cheer, right? When we gather together and, and go to church, like we're going to church. We got up today to go to church. This is a church service. You are the church. We're the body. We get that. But we assemble together and have a church service on a regular basis because it's important that we continually assemble ourselves together for, uh, that's another sermon for another time. But the point is, there's a debate as to the aim or the general direction of what we'd call a church service. Should a church service be more directed at those who are unbelievers, those who may be seeking truth and are outside of the faith, or should the church be directed toward believers? Is it a gathering for the purpose of believers to be strengthened and edified, or is it more of an evangelistic effort to bring people who are outside the faith into the family. And my simple answer to that is this. I don't believe there's a need to aim or relegate a service to either group of people in particular. Because church should be a place where as believers, we are the church. And as the church, we should be manifesting the character of of God. If you recall in chapter 4, we said that if we are building our lives on the foundation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then everything that we build on that foundation ought to align characteristically with the nature of Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, if what we are doing within the church is built on the foundation, the premise that everything we are is by the grace of God, that I'm not here today because I'm better than anybody else or I'm more qualified than anybody else. I am here today because I'm a born-again believer who's been renewed and regenerated by the power of God's Spirit, and I want to get together with other people who have also been regenerated by that same power, and we can collectively lift our voices and come together to hear the Word of God spoken, and we can be changed and we can grow together collectively as a community. So church should be a place where we're manifesting the characteristics, the traits of God himself, which would mean the atmosphere should be an atmosphere of love, of joy, of peace, which means we ought to be treating people with kindness, with patience, with common goodness. 
that we should exemplify faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, which are the nine fruits of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5. So if we do that, there's really no purpose or need to aim at any one particular group. Because at the end of the day, what the world needs is to understand that God's people are a people of love, joy, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, patience. You follow me? And so there's no need, in my estimation, to direct the service at any one particular people group. That's why we're not a cowboy church or a biker church. I'm not criticizing to each his own, but that's the reason why we don't brand ourselves. That's why you'll look around, you'll see cowboy hats, you'll see, you'll see leather cuts of people who are in biker gangs. We love them too, right? You'll see tattooed, pierced up people. You'll see you know, people who are prim and proper and pristine and look all pretty. You'll see varying bodies within our culture of people in the church, and that's how it should be. The church is a melting pot of people. Because the one thing that binds us together is the grace of God that we have found in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's what keeps us together as a family, and that's why we assemble together as a family, because as disciples, we want to learn more about Him. We want to grow in His grace. And so that's essentially what the church is, right? And then triad number three. Oh my gosh. Triad number three. Let's do this. Y'all ready for this? Do this with me. Ready? Let's forget that there's an 11 o'clock service. All right? Triad number three. I have to give you this or we won't get anywhere next week. Triad number three. Uh, there are three levels of commitment within the community of the church. You see where we've gone? We, we started with our, 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 our general salvation or our, our relationship with God. And then, and then we recognize that there is a kingdom that we want to yield ourselves to, that God has a higher purpose for us individually. And so we pray your kingdom come, your will be done, and we desire Christ to reign on the throne of our hearts as individuals. But then there is this other element within the narrative of Scripture uh, that is this, this commitment within the community of the church. So there are three levels of commitment in triad number three as well. You ready for this? Level number one is what we're going to call spectators. Every church, every church has spectators. All are welcome. Everyone's invited. The door is wide open to anyone, everyone who would like to see what we are all about. It's a wide open door. Anybody is welcome to come and sit and listen and learn, right? Spectator. Every church has spectators. A lot of y'all are spectators. I'm not criticizing you, but you're a spectator. Your level of commitment at best is this. And I'm proud of you. I'm glad you're here. I'd rather you be here than laying at home in bed on a Sunday morning. I don't care where you were last night. I don't care what you did last night. I don't care if you woke up with your hat too tight this morning because your head's pounding from the good time you had yesterday evening doesn't make any difference to me. I'm just glad you're here. I think every church ought to smell like stale booze and cigarettes on Sunday morning. <laughs> I do. Because we're welcoming anybody. You don't have to fit any certain pedigree to be a part of this group. You can be here, right? 
You, you can listen, sing with us, laugh with us. For crying out loud, laugh when I tell a joke. If you do that, you are beyond welcome here. I'll put you on the stage. <laughs> spectators. Every church has spectators. And the spectators, frankly, make up the majority of the church. I'm not saying that, in a, again, in a critical fashion. If a church is growing as we have historically in the past seven years, the rich church has grown over the past seven years. We've grown exponentially over the last several months. As we've moved and merged together with another body, it's been a beautiful, wonderful thing. No matter what the devil's tried to do with it, it's been a beautiful, wonderful thing. And, and so we have so many people that just come and they want to see it and they, they want to hear about it. And listen, in fact, this happened with Jesus, happened with John the Baptist. People just wanted to go out and they were going, I got to see what the heck's going on. Jesus even called this crowd out, talking about John the Baptist. He said, what'd you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with a wind, a, a man clothed in, 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 in fancy garments. He said, no, no, no. He said, I'll tell you what you went to hear with John. You went to hear somebody that was going to tell you the truth unashamedly and unabashed. And so they had spectators. Spectators are in every church. I have to hurry because number two within this triad, we have servants. A church has to have people who have found, hear me out, their church family. These are my people. I found my place of service. This is my church. So within the church, we have spectators, and then we have servants, people who have just decided and been guided by the Spirit of God that, that, that doesn't mean every other church is bad, doesn't mean all the other churches are wrong. It just means that this is my church. These are my people. This is my tribe, and this is where I align. This is where I serve. So we have servants within the church. We get asked quite frequently about church membership. Now, I'm only going to be able to give you this briefly. Again, it doesn't matter how much you cry or beg right now. That's all you get. <laughs> but we get asked frequently about church membership. Well, well we, we see church membership as much more than having your name added to a list. So, 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 so the, what does it mean then to be a church member? Well, not to burst your bubble, but, but the concept of church membership as we've known it in, in, in Western church culture isn't found anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> this idea that you add your name to a role, now I'm a member. <laughs> I'm a church curmudgeon, right? And we, you know, and we get, we get this, this idea that, that somehow a church member is like being a member of the Eagles Hall, right? Or the Elks Club or whatever. What do ladies do? I don't know what women do. I guess you can be a part of the Eagles Hall too, huh? Something? I don't know. Whatever. I'm obviously not a part. But we've treated church membership that way. I dealt with this a little bit last Sunday, just this, this false concept of what church really is all about. But a church member, according to the New Testament description, is, is someone who has trusted Christ as Savior, been baptized, and is now actively serving in some capacity within their local church. You, you, you don't ever find this notion in the Bible of an inactive church member. That'd be like saying you have an inactive part of your body. I have an inactive liver, right? I know some of y'all, your liver's been pickled, but it doesn't mean it's inactive, <laughs> right? That'd be like saying I have an inactive heart. No, you have a beating heart. My hands are working. My eyes work. My ears work. Obviously, my mouth <laughs> is able to speak, right? We understand 
that if it, when the Bible uses the word body, it, 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 it implies emphatically the concept that being a member of a church means that you are an active part of that body. Now, let me qualify that by saying your part within that body may be the, a part of the, the spirit. may not be hands or feet or eyes or ears. Your part might be that of prayer. You might, just, you, might, you might just be a part of the worship. You might just be there silently adoring Jesus and ushering his presence into our midst by loving on him and praising him. There are metaphysical things that happen within a church body that can't be seen or touched, but are equally, and, and in some cases, more important than the physical. But being a church member doesn't mean that you put your name on a roll. Now, if you want to fill out paperwork, we'll give it to you. But being a member means that you find your function, you find your place within that church community. I'll elaborate more on that next Sunday because we're out of time. And then within the triad of the community of the New Testament church, we have leaders within the church, people who have matured to a place where they are able to teach, able to lead, able to mentor other believers. So every disciple at some point ought to level up to the place that you can disciple yourself disciple other people, I mean. You follow me? So within the triad of the church, we have spectators, we have servants, and we have leaders, people who have moved to a place of leadership, be it great or small, right? And if I had time, I'd break down the triad of leadership. There are different levels of leadership and all that. We get that, recognize that, understand that. But the fact is, before we can understand chapter number five, we have to recognize the fact that there are these triad relationships that are in place in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, you have to be here next Sunday to see us throw people out of church. Okay? I want the security team to be ready. We're going to be kicking hind end and taking names. We're not. I, I, but I want you to see why this guy in the church in Corinth was held responsible for his actions. There's a good reason. I promise you he wasn't a spectator. He wasn't a first-time visitor. And we have to understand that, that with, with, with great leadership comes great responsibility. The biblical text says, to whom much is given, of the same shall much also be required. I got more for you, but I ain't got time. Let's stand together. Father, thank you so much. For the grace we have been given in Christ, I pray that you would bless now as we try to conceptualize and understand where we fit in this whole scheme, this whole pattern of your purpose. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.